coming up next on Two Cops, One Donut. Drug dependency is a big one. They'll get them dependent on drugs and facilitate that that dependency. And drugs is huge. Um, I've got I've literally got Facebook search warrant evidence of the private messaging between, and this is just one example of this particular trafficker saying, uh, do this date first. And the girls, multiple of the victims are saying, daddy, can I have a pill? Do this date first. Daddy, can I, you know, go to bed or, you know, go see my family or a friend do these dates first. So totally controlling them through every means. And, and the fentanyl pills are a huge part of this as well right now. All right, welcome back to Cops One Donut. I'm your host, Eric Levine, and with me today, I have retired detective Heidi Chance. How are you doing, ma'am? Very good. Uh, so today, for those wondering, Heidi, you may not be familiar with this, but um, I talk a lot at the beginning, and so people have complained and said, just tell us what the hell the episode's going to be about, and then do your talking, so we can decide if we're going to listen. And I'm like, you know what, that's... That's fair. It sounds like cops. Yeah, yeah, it is cops. And uh, so today's episode is going to be about human sex trafficking. And I got like the cream of the crop. Um, somebody that's done the uh, undercover work um, has a lot of good things going out there for as far as uh, training and awareness. Um, so I brought Heidi on here uh, and we're going to talk about her organization, A Chance for Awareness and her experience. But as most of you know, I like to get to know my guests first and I like people to get to know the guests. So to try to find that correlation that a lot of us first responders have of why we got into the life of service, so to speak. So for you, Heidi, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And, you know, did you have family in law enforcement? What, what got you into this? So I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and I am a Phoenician. I guess that's what they call us. Born okay. and raised, which is very rare, actually, because there's a lot of people that come to Arizona for the weather. I have no idea why, because it's like 106 degrees out today. Yeah. Texas yeah. is just, a, it's 107, as a matter of fact. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, I do have law enforcement in my background, in my family. Um, my dad is also retired uh, law enforcement, and then my grandfather was law enforcement in New York. Okay. So, in the so, blood, for sure. So, so it's in the blood. Um, uh -huh. So was he an NYPD cop? Yes. Really? Okay. Yeah. So that's got to be, is he still alive? No, unfortunately. Okay. Did you did you know him real well by chance? I'm just... Um, I knew him when he moved out to Arizona for health reasons. So he had already retired from NYPD. But okay. I've heard stories. Okay. I was just, I was curious if he got a chance to kind of see the difference between where he was a cop versus where you were a cop. Cause those, you know, there's that huge cultural difference being, you know, you're kind of a wild West person where you're yes. at. Um, me, I kind of got a little mix. I got that Southern hospitality slash, you know, a little bit of cowboyish um, with our, our bad guys. Yeah. But I, I know I got quite a few friends. I got some out in Scottsdale and um, I've had a, quite a few of the Pinnell County guys on. Um, including Chief, I'm sorry, I say Chief, Sheriff Lamb and uh, Chief Deputy Matt Thomas, if you're familiar with him. Yep. And then uh, I'm going to have Frank, Fridays with Frank, the guy that pulls cars over over there in Pinell County, and 
makes everybody look like jack wagons. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, it's so funny. <laughs> it's like a funny version of cops is really what it is. But they put all that stuff out there themselves, which is, uh, I, this is kind of why I got the podcast going is because I don't feel like we can get our message out there as, as much as we want and in control of it, so to speak. So, um, you're doing it. You saw it. You saw that we need to control our narratives and stuff like that. So you obviously saw the human sex trafficking thing being an issue, but, um, we'll get to that. So, so you become a cop in Arizona, um, Got some family that's police officers. Now, did you always know? Did you have that? So I had the, I don't know, disease or trait of being in the right place at the right time. Okay. I think that's one of those things. So I thought, I actually thought I was going to go in the Air Force. So I even switched high schools to do junior ROTC. And I thought I was going to be a security police officer in the Air Force because I was waiting to be 21. But uniquely, right after graduating high school, I actually started the hiring process for Phoenix Police Department for a new position that they had called cadet trainee. And so it was a civilian position for individuals between 18 and 21 and trying to get them in a, <laughs> trying to get them in a spot where they can um, you know become officers someday. <laughs> So, so we need to let people know that you uh, you have several dogs. I do. <laughs> and they may or may not partake in this podcast today. Yes. And for those that know me, no, I don't like to edit anything out if I don't have to. Um, so I think having the dogs in there is fun and natural. Yeah. And we're going to we're gonna leave them we in there. We all have pets. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we yeah. do. And so, they don't cooperate sometimes. I mean, I have real full-size dogs. You have little half dogs. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are uh, their names? Um, I've got three dogs. So um, we have Callie, we have um, Lola, and we have Cash. And Cash is with a K, and he is one that I just recently got in November. I did not have an opportunity to name him, but he has a sibling who is my stepdaughter's dog, and his name is Nash. So Nash and Cash. Oh, I was hoping it was yeah. money. Cash oh, money. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So you go through the cadet program. Um, you become basically civilianized version of a cop, yeah. and that gives you the bug, and you just roll well, with it? Yeah. So um, actually, my dad was Phoenix Police Department, and so he had helped me get on with um, the cadet program and, uh, you know, inspired me, as always, to follow in his footsteps. Um, and so basically when I started with the cadet program, it was like a light blue shirt, a fully marked patrol car, a three week Academy pepper spray, a baton and me, <laughs> and there were five of us okay. originally. So I have, um, I'm the first female for the program ever for Phoenix police department and I'm badge number two. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So I actually have the badge number two. Okay. And yeah. then you you would get to mess with bad guys and be like, who does number two work for? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it was definitely a, a, a interesting dynamic. They had never had a program like this before. So it was a lot of trial and error. I rode with another officer for a long time. Then I was off on my own and I was responding to accidents, um, burglaries where there's no you know follow up, that there's no suspect there, but just fingerprints. 
crime scenes, taking photos of crime scenes, those kind of things. But inevitably, driving a Flintmark patrol car, I rolled up on hot calls all the time and, you know, really had to, you know, think on my feet at 18, 19 years old as far as getting back up, um, calming people down, preserving evidence, all those things, even that young. So now with your experience, you know, as fully retired peace officer, have a career under your belt, looking back, do you feel like they kind of set you up for failure and you just got lucky? Or do you feel like they trained you well enough to be able to handle all that? You know, I feel like I was, you know, very fortunate that nothing, knock on wood, bad happened. But I think maybe changing that program and the, this whole driving a fully marked patrol car, being mistaken for an officer. Like, I know we have citizen, like, volunteers that drive like a Toyota pickup truck. And I think they should have put us, you know, apart from a fully marked patrol car. Because literally people would be, you know, how people flag us down all the time. Yeah. And they don't know that a light blue shirt doesn't mean that I'm not sworn. Right. So it, it put me in some situations that I probably should not have been in. And yeah, we, so my, my department did the same thing. Um, uh, it, they, I can't remember what they called it. Um, but luckily much different uniform, much different car. I mean, it, it, it is, it's a, a Tahoe, I think, which we all are driving Tahoes right now, but, um, clearly different markings on the side. Uh, but that was a concern. I was like, man, if they dress them like us and, they give them one of our cars like that's going to be a mistake. Like we saw the writing on the wall and uh, especially side of town I work in, which is like our most violent side of town. I'm like, that's the last thing you need is to be working a burglary and a damn shootout comes by because there's a lot of gang activity and stuff. And it, that's not uncommon. You shoot, they'll, they'll pop shots at our cars, you know, like mm -hmm. <laughs> that stuff happens. Yeah. So I mean, this was back in 1997, 96. Okay. I was a so freshman in high school. Oh, okay. Well, so, I'm older than you. <laughs> it, I'm not too much younger, but yeah. <laughs> I was almost there. But yeah. if, you, if you would have asked 18-year-old me if I was ready to be a cop, I would have told you, hell yeah. But yeah. if you ask 40-year-old me if I was ready then, I don't think I was ready even until I was 25. Yeah. To be honest, uh, I, my maturity level, at least my sense of humor, it hasn't changed since I was 14 years old. So... Uh, I don't know that I'll ever truly be ready to be a cop, but here they still keep me on. Amazingly. Yeah, they let you do it. But yeah. <laughs> I, I do think the females, they mature much earlier than us, and they, they take things uh, a lot more serious than, than the fellas typically do. There are some that do, but I think our what draws us into this career field. Now, you had your dad, and I'm the same. I'm in the same boat as you are. My dad retired from the department I'm at. And yeah. I actually tried to make it on my own, at other departments before I got there because I didn't want to be in his shadow and none of that. And uh, here I am anyway. So yeah. <laughs> Did you get to take any calls with him? So um, basically in, in 99, when I graduated the Academy, he gave me his badge because he had retired that year also. So oh, that's he awesome. had, uh, yeah, he had the chief give me the patrolman badge and my dad pinned it on me. And yeah, it was like that. So that is special. cool. That is cool. Yeah, yeah. I had, I had my dad, uh, pin my badge. Um, and then, uh, then my wife after all the rest of them, uh, you know, through the promotions. Oh my whatnot. gosh. What is that? Apparently, 
My virtual assistant, Miss A, was listening to our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Siri messing with me. My yeah. watch goes off all the time when I'm oh, doing yeah. these. This is going to be a fun podcast. Just I think so. All the interruptions. There's ghosts I love it. in my house. I, <laughs> I will make sure not to say the A word. Uh, okay. Yes. Neither one of us. I, I understand what you're talking about. Uh, I'm I call sure her my virtual assistant. She's always listening. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> but yeah, I got to take a few calls with my dad. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that was pretty cool. He's a lieutenant. So anytime people heard him chime up on the radio that he was taking an assist with me, they they didn't put the connection together and they would be like, no, no, you can't let the Lieutenant be taking calls. Like you don't let oh. sergeants take calls and the Lieutenant's out there taking a call. Yeah. And, and finally a, the Sergeant had to get on there and like, it's his son. Let him take a call with his son. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, How big of an agency were you? Um, ours is roughly 2000. Okay. Um, yeah. And um, we're covering about 390 something square miles um heavily populated i think about 1.2 million people yeah um so pretty pretty big uh yeah. a lot of fun for sure um we like to say it's a, a big city with a small town feel so uh -huh. it's kind of kind of the way it is over here yeah um, without phoenix without is, naming it <laughs> yeah phoenix is the fifth largest city in the united states right now is it and really? when I first started back in 99, we had 3,200 officers. Okay. I'm, I think we're at 2,600 now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we should be, according to our population, if you look at places that are similar like Baltimore, we should have 3,000 to 3,500, I think is the number, roughly. Mm -hmm. And we just can't get – we'll bounce from 1,700 to 2,000, I guess. We just can't wow. can't keep up. Can't get enough yeah. people anymore. Now that's the hard part, getting people to want to do the job. So, yeah, and definitely. As you know, the human trafficking side uh, in my neck of the woods um, and, and your neck of the woods over in Arizona, this is bad because we're right by the border. But, um, okay, so, yeah. so you do, you get into the police work. How long did it take you? Because I want to jump into your specialty. Um, okay. We're about 15 minutes in. I yeah. think it's a good time to transition. So, you get a little taste for everything, you know, being in patrol and whatnot. Were you leaning towards human trafficking? Because I don't really think back then that was such a, a popular name as it is today. But what no. were you leaning towards? Um, I didn't know. Um, I knew, obviously, that um, I wanted to move around the department. And I probably should have moved around a lot more than I did. But once I got to the human trafficking unit, I actually spent almost 14 years there. But I spent, um, in my years in patrol, in one precinct, I was patrol, SRO, community action officer, all of those kind of things in the one precinct. And so when I was a community action officer, I'm sorry, not community action, uh, a school resource officer, that's when I learned more about um, trafficking. The unit was called VICE back then. So yep. VICE was you know, misdemeanor prostitution, a little bit of undercover work. Uh, it was separate from the drug guys. We have our own drug enforcement bureau portion of Phoenix police department. So they have their undercover. So it was really just prostitution, but it didn't really evolve into what it is today until later. Um, but I started doing like temporary shadows with them, um, based on, um, you know, my time as a school resource officer, I, 
you know, would get the patrol car keys, go to the school, end my shift, return the patrol car. And one day going in, I saw this girl that was in the juvenile holding area that I knew when she was in seventh and eighth grade. And she's still a juvenile, but um, a little older at that on the, that day. And she was in trouble. I was like, why are you here? <laughs> you know, and she recognized me and, you know, she was like, well, I'm in trouble for prostitution. My boyfriend and I are, you know, doing some stuff and I'm trying to get money for him. And, and I, I was, I was already a cop for like six, seven years. And I really didn't know that that world touched juveniles. Like I had never thought about that. So I that knew. was, that was the, yeah. the light bulb moment. Yeah. I was like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> I, were kids getting involved in this? I, I had kind of the same epiphany when I, um, I was been a part of a property crimes team for about three, four years. And, um, I would always kind of look down on property crimes teams as a patrol officer. I'm like, that's, you're just handling, that's boring. And, uh, just, I discovered it. It's on the cusp of everything. It's on the cusp of homicide on the cusp of gang and, and, and human trafficking and all of the, you know, pedophilia crap and all that. It's just, it's kind of a Jack of all trades. It's a utility team. And, um, the, the, the light bulb moment for me was when we're working with, uh, we're, we're going after a crew air quotes for those just listening um, <laughs> of car thieves and three of them are 12 years old. Oh, wow. And I'm like, what? In like, I've heard of that, I guess, but I never really yeah. bought it until here I am hunting down 12 year olds that are mm -hmm. stealing cars more proficiently than a, you know, an adult. So um, yeah. But it, it, just like you said, though, I, you, you stumble into these calls, you know, you're, you, you jack up a, a guy that just burglarized the house. There's a female in the car. You start talking to her. You find out that he's also using her to sell her for sex and um, had her for, for years when she was a juvenile. You know, I mean, just these are the types of stories you start to hear. And yep. you're like, what the fuck? Really? Like, how does yep. that happen? I, I never put two and two together until I really started um, uh studying it when i went for my master's degree um human trafficking was was a big topic um 2016 2017 and uh i learned a lot and it, and it wasn't even my focus you know criminology in general was the focus but um the stuff that i was learning about the human trafficking I'm, that's why i'm glad i ran into you i've been wanting yeah. an expert i haven't oh, found an expert <laughs> so i've gotten people that touch around it but um not, not some, like you said, like vice guys that work prostitution and stuff like that, but you're going to be able to give good insights. So yeah. you, so you have this epiphany moment with this juvenile. Now, is that what, was that what stemmed you like looking into starting to look for vice, I guess it would be? Yeah. So it was kind of around that same time I got asked to be a decoy posing as a prostitute working the side of the street. What was your name? Phoenix. I have lots of names, sunshine, candy. Okay. <laughs> okay. I see both of those. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah. Lots now, of stage names. Now, did you give yourself those names or were these picked by the Sarge or something? No, we gave ourselves those names. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I want to, I want for any officers out there that they're looking to get into this type of work, um, where I'm at, they still very much do it. So that's pretty cool. Um, 
but if there's anybody in, in, in civilians, if you're wondering how we do these types of investigations, one, if you're a person that goes out and buys prostitutes, <laughs> you need to listen to this and don't do that crap. But, uh, for those that are just wondering how this world works in law enforcement. So how, how did you even start training to go do this? If you're law enforcement, stop and listen to me right now. If you're a police department that does not have an LPR system, Insight is offering the first 10 agencies, that means one agency apiece, gets one camera for free. You have to tell them that two cops, one donut sent you. You heard me right. If you're a police agency that does not have an LPR system yet, or does have an LPR system, and you're not happy with the product you have, Insight is offering you a free camera, no strings attached, and they will install it. I have 10 to give out. Tell them two cops, one donut sent you, or reach out to me, and I will get you in contact. If you're a business owner or an HOA, please stop and listen to me right now. If you're just listening to the audio, do yourself a favor and watch the YouTube version of this episode to get a visual of what I'm about to tell you. I want to tell you guys about Insight LPR. It's a license plate reader. If your agency, community, or business is looking to invest in LPR to help solve and deter crime or to make your community safer, Insight LPR has my vote of confidence. I've met with their team. They know their LPRs, guys. Uh, They're the real deal. They bring over 75 years of collective experience to building LPR cameras and the software that supports communities across the country. The other thing I really like about this team is how much they listen to law enforcement. They understand the importance of working together with law enforcement and getting their input as they build and innovate products and their service to match the needs of law enforcement. In other words, when I complain or have suggestions to make their damn camera better, they actually do it. The Insight LPR team is extremely passionate and takes pride in their product development, which makes their cameras some of the most durable cameras in the market. For the gear nerds out there with that means is this stuff's made of military grade aluminum and is nitrogen purged whatever that means this design makes the cameras rugged and able to withstand harsh weather elements here's the big selling point for me their nighttime scan accuracy is higher than most of the leading competitors in my opinion this is what sets them apart as we know the majority of crimes occur at night so it's critical to have high scan accuracy at night insights cameras check the box with the nighttime plate read accuracy greater than 96% 96% guys that's pretty freaking high. If your community is looking to invest in LPR technology, reach out to one of their experts today or reach out to me. Tell them two cops, one donut sent you. So it was, um, and this is where training is so important now. <laughs> this was an on the job. Hey, go out there. This <laughs> is the time. Have the conversation <laughs> and let us know with your deal signal to come in and arrest the guy. That's how it began. And it was out on the streets uh, initially. Uh, We would do it a couple of different ways. We'd work out of a hotel room, but it wasn't where we would bring the guy back to the room. It was that's where we would um, start walking towards when they were parking or um, pulling around the corner to, um, you know, park for us for the car date or whatever we had agreed upon. And then obviously working in hotels. um, Car date. Huh? I love that you call it a car date. Oh, yeah, car date. <laughs> That's sweet. That's so sweet. Yeah, but it was one of those things where obviously, um, you know, you have to think about officer safety, whether or not you're going to carry a gun out there or not. And in Arizona heat, there's not really a lot of places I can conceal a firearm. So a lot of times I was not carrying um, and I, you know, had a good 
outline and briefing pre, uh, pre-operation to know where my backup was. A lot of these sex buyers, the Johns sex buyers, they try and lure you away further down the road, behind buildings, all those things. So it really does take like a person to recognize and be constantly thinking about the scenarios that could be dangerous because it is fun. It is sexy, but it is also, you know, we've had some incidents where we've had female decoys grabbed, touched inappropriately, and you don't want to have a situation where you're standing outside of a vehicle and they grab a hold of you and start driving and dragging you down the street and all those things. So it's, it's being conscious of, and being aware of that fine line. Like I'm a undercover So I'm supposed to act like this is really going to happen and I'm really who I'm portraying, but also be officer safety wise. Um, And, you know, those are those are things that I didn't get training on. I kind of just had to learn about it. I do now present and teach in undercover schools how to do those conversations, how to remain safe um, and how to have a a successful operation where you don't have decoys that are getting hurt. Um, but definitely when I did it, it was not, it was like, Hey, get out there, go see if you can get a lot of dates. So, okay. Now, now, you know where I want to go with this. I want to hear about some of the the early failures. Um, yeah. Come on. I want to give me a good story. Well, good stories are, um, unfortunately where you have other cops that'll pull up on you. And you know, there are or corrections officers because they're wearing, you know, they're, BDU pants and their work shoes and you see, you know, their uniform shirt on the passenger side of the car and you're thinking, yeah, you don't want to talk to me, but then they start talking and you're like, Oh, okay. Well, I guess you're doing this. You know, those are, those are awkward. (laughs) Well, sir, you're an idiot. Pull over there. (laughs) I can tell you that the very first time I ever even walked up to a car the guy was already masturbating himself. And I, I told him, you started the party without me. <laughs> That's wonderful. I know. I'm like, okay. What do you I say? <laughs> what do you say? Hey, that's my job. Yeah. That's what I, <laughs> yeah. You started the party without me. That what do you is, need me for? That's a t-shirt right there. Yeah. <laughs> that's a t-shirt. We just get like, you know, the outline of a hand, a yeah. little, like, like a Mario mushroom on top of it and say, hey, you started the party without me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can sell those in your shop. Yeah. Um, that's freaking hilarious. Okay. All right. All right. So let me get my mind right here. Yes. Um, I'm trying to get more appropriate because I'm thinking yeah. all the funny shit. Um, now, as far as learning the language, there's a certain type of language. It's probably a slightly different in different areas of the country, I'm assuming. Um, maybe even city to city. I don't know. But um, as far as getting to know that, did you get to watch operations before they just stuck you in or were you just thrown to the wolves? No, I was thrown to the wolves, but it's okay. I mean, it wasn't just me. There were several female officers that um, have done that before. There just wasn't any like structurized training. Um, You know, terminology though comes in more to play when you're doing the undercover work in the hotels and you're actually posted up online as an escort and, and doing those engagements with, you know, sex buyers that, we call hobbyists because they are ones that really get off on not getting caught and doing it constantly on a regular basis. And so they're the ones that will test you with language and with terminology to see if you are the police, uh, obviously several other things that they do, 
but definitely knowledge of terminology. If you're posing as a new young person, you're not going to know certain words. So if you automatically know those things, you know, that might put them off or, you know, they, they get hinked up over all kinds of oh, stuff. Oh, by knowing too much. Well, if you're posing as a 14 year old prostitute, yeah, you can't know. Oh, oh, oh shit. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. That's, see, I don't know. I'm not a criminal, I guess. No. <laughs> I, wonder, you know, I wouldn't have never even put that together. Yeah. Um, but I've become are... a very good liar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, well, the way I kind of look at it too, is like, if you ever go hunting, okay, the best time to go hunting is during the rut because the deer are all sex crazy. They're not thinking right. Well, it's kind of the environment you're playing in. Absolutely. (laughs) They're not exactly thinking straight. Um, now what are some common tactics that these guys will use to try to prove that you're a cop or prove that you're not a cop? Well, without giving too much away, because I don't know who all the audience would be outside of law enforcement, but definitely there are things that they do. There are forums out there where they will post up, you know, she touched her hair. It's the police. Get out of there if she touches her hair, because that's indicating (laughs) to the responding people that, which is not true, but I mean, it could be anything, but that's something that they'll put out there or they'll put out what vehicles we're in. Sometimes we work out of like an RV. Um, they'll post, you know, that we're working at, out of an RV. Um, they'll put out, um, you know, if we're posting online and let's say one of them got caught, they'll actually tag our ad in their post uh-huh. to kind of alert to other buyers. This is the police. Don't call this girl's ad. So, okay. Yeah. All kinds of working against us for sure. And those are the guys that we really want to get. Obviously we want to get, you know, low level guys that are just trying this so that we can educate them and have them not do this again. But hobbyists, the guys who do this on a daily, and I'm talking, you know, lunchtime every day and then go home to their wife. Those kind of guys. Yeah. Spreading disease and shit. Um, (laughs) so their family don't even know it, but, uh, what, Okay, I, I'm trying because I don't want to give away secrets by any yeah. means, but I do like the funny stuff. So, yeah. what are some of the funny? Uh, is there any funny tactics these guys have tried to use that they think is something that cops aren't allowed to do? Um, a lot of it is, um, you know, they get hinked up over anything. Like if, um, let's say we go in the hotel room and I have an adjoining door to the hotel room just because that's what room we got. They'll think that that's the police in the other room because there's an adjoining door. Oh. Not always we can do it without an adjoining door, but that's something that I think that they, you know, see and then turn around and walk out right away about. Okay. You know. So now what's your mindset? I want to kind of, for, for officers trying to get down this path, like what's going through your head when you know you are getting into, you're going into a room. Or you're going, you're, you're getting into a car. I don't know if you you even get into cars or anything like that. But when you know you're getting into a situation, and you're like, all right, this is the going to be the hinkiest moment that I'm going to have in this situation. Like, what's going through your brain? So a lot of times it is where, um, and I teach about this. Um, unfortunately, you've got to put them at ease. We can get over the, are you a cop? Prove you're not a cop. Are you a cop? Why are we talking about cops? All of that. So I usually will hug them. And so a lot of officers are like, 
undercovers are like, oh, I'm not touching them and I'm not going to let them touch me. But I feel like if I give them a hug, not only am I letting them see that I might be real, but I can also check their 90% area to see if they're armed. And we, we really get past all of that apprehension just by me letting them hug me. Hug is a hug (laughs) and it's worked well for me. Um, the real prostitutes do it all the time in the reverse of all of um, what we've been talking about me posing as an undercover. I'm obviously the backup and the arrest team for male detectives who are posing as sex buyers. And so that's, that's where a lot of, um, you know, me getting to see the actual exploited real victims come in and engage with our undercover. So I'm seeing their demeanor. I'm seeing how they run their show and and how they tell if it's the police or not and all of those things so it's it's uh on the job training as as far as that goes unless you have an actual undercover school um and a person who can instruct about uh undercover work and and that kind of you know training okay it's and a sticky situation <laughs> yeah i hope not <laughs> yeah. um and when you're doing this obviously Technology's changed a lot. I actually just had this conversation um, with my last guest. I don't know how we got on it. We were talking about microphones. And oh. now, like, the, the having a wire, the old school, like, everything's a wire now. Your AirPods are a wire. Your phone's a wire. Everything's a wire. So d- you don't have to worry about that as much anymore, do you? No, no. I can tell you one story from a long time ago because we don't do it anymore. But we had a little cigarette pack, marble, marble cigarette. Oh, the old microphone. And it had a nine volt battery in it. And a lot of times we would be out there with the cigarette pack. Um, but sometimes we would just take the portion of the recording device and put it in wherever. And a lot of times it would heat up. And I, I think I almost got burned a couple of times <laughs> besides the heat and, you know, the, uh, yeah. you know, being out in the heat, I'm getting burned in my, my shirt area because of the bug (laughs) right um now while you guys are you're getting into this world you you obviously start honing your craft and um becoming successful because you you kept going um if you failed a lot i'm sure they would have booted you right out of the unit um so you you get good at this and what did you start what what was your takeaway what were you starting to notice uh with the world of sex trap i'm sorry we won't say sex trafficking yet, but in prostitution. All right. So in the early stages, because I went there in 2007, 2008, um, I went there for six months. I had um, you know, been assigned to a squad. I was on a temporary assignment with the hopes of being there, assigned there permanently. And then all of a sudden they eliminated that squad and I got sent back to patrol and I had to test a second time to the position. Once I got there full time, it was January of 2009. And um, what I noticed then is that the focus was mostly on arresting prostitutes. Um, And that's, you know, where we were at, even though we knew about traffickers, we knew about buyers, Backpage was blowing up, all of those things. It wasn't until a case, and this happened like right about the right time that I was transferring there for real, with a girl that was, she was held in a dog crate at an apartment, a runaway juvenile. She was um, trafficked by an 18 and 19 year old, male and female. 
And, um, you know, mother knew she was at that apartment. Other people had seen her there. Patrol responded there multiple times trying to do a search for her. They didn't find her because these people had like a, a built up waterbed type of uh, bed situation. And she was literally in the bed during times that she wasn't held in the, in the dog crate. But when the police came <clears> to look um, and finally they were able to find her and, um, you know, and she talked about her exploitation. So that really started the focus being on traffickers more than just these undercover misdemeanor operations and going after traffickers. And that's, that's where I changed my focus. And I've had a lot of cases that I've put traffickers in prison for hundreds of years. And I'm super proud of the career that I've had. My best prosecution is 40 years. So you got me blown out. <laughs> um, almost 500, 493.5. Dang, yeah. I'm one person. One person. That's amazing. That's yeah. awesome. I, I would have that on my wall somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, can you give people kind of a, a definition of what what is human trafficking, sex trafficking, and how that's different than just prostitution? So human trafficking, human smuggling, those words get um, confused. So human smuggling, if you think about that, and that's, you know, we're near the border. I know you've had guests on talking about the border and, and the trafficking that's going on with that. Um, human smuggling is a crime against the border, whereas human trafficking is a crime against a person. And that trafficking can be through forced labor or forced sex. And so for us to prove a crime of human trafficking, and I, I come from the perspective of mostly sex trafficking, we haven't really had a lot of labor trafficking cases come to our attention, not that it's not happening. Um, we have a situation where these victims of labor trafficking don't realize that they're victims. They're making more money uh, here in the United States than they are in their other country. And so they don't come forward because they don't know that they're a victim. Um, whereas sex trafficking, we do have victims that come forward um, and we do contact them through those uh, prostitution contacts. And really what it is, is the evolution of and our understanding of sex trafficking. We're recognizing that people are being exploited out there. They're not there under their own free will. They're actually not free to leave, even though they may be walking down the side of the road with a phone in their hand, they're not free to leave. And we have some repair to do as far as our relationship with those, those exploited victims, because they literally have been told by their trafficker, the police are just gonna arrest you. And that's exactly what we were doing before. And so we're trying to change that now, as far as, you know, obviously there are some individuals that are out there working independent and committing that crime without the direction or exploitation of another person. But there are individuals that are definitely being exploited. And so deciphering through that is, is what we do on a daily basis. Now I got a kind of a two-parter here. Yeah. Um, there's going to be people, um, civilians, especially that are going to hear that and they'll be like, do they not have a family they can go to? Like, how are they, how can they be walking freely and they don't just get away? Um, so let's go down that path. Uh, I, I know the answer, but I, I would like to hear from, from you. Yeah. And so that's where 
um, since retiring, and we didn't even get through my career, but I retired in October of 2021 <laughs> um, after almost 14 years in the uh, human exploitation and trafficking unit. That's where I see the power of awareness. I see me presenting about trafficking, what the indicators are, what trafficking is, how victims become vulnerable, what traffickers do to recruit and groom and keep these victims exploited, and then sex buyers and their part in this entire situation creating the demand for this problem. That is what I present on and speak on, and I have built a whole course on because I want people to have a full understanding of this because I have an ulterior motive. Every time I go present, I see the community members as as future jurors, and I know that I need those juries to understand what trafficking is, what it isn't, how these victims are vulnerable, because when I have them on my uh, case and I want them to deliver a, a guilty verdict, um, they're going to need to understand all of the parameters and dynamics of the life and, and of sex trafficking victims. And, you know, it is a huge burden to be a juror. And I understand that, um, that trial that I went through with the almost 500 year sentence, that was a seven month long trial. I testified 11 times, but the jury understood and learned through the use of expert witness testimony. And obviously the victims that came to testify what sex trafficking is and what that victim's going to have to live with for the rest of their life. And so that's, that's my ulterior motive for my awareness mission and everything that I'm doing now. Beautiful. I hope I'm able, hopefully I'm able to help you get that message out there. So, um, what is the typical living environment for your person that's being human trafficked? So part of that recruitment and grooming is to get the victim away from their family, away from the familiar. And so isolation is huge for a trafficker to isolate their victim. They're constantly traveling. They're very transient. They're from, you know, hotel to hotel, city to city, state to state. One, because they don't want to get caught by the police. And then two, because they want their victim to be so dependent on them that when they're in one place too long and they start to get to know like the hotel desk clerk or, you know, the custodial person at the hotel, the trafficker is going to uproot them again because they don't want that person, a normal person, to talk to them about getting out and leaving them, leaving their trafficker. And so that's part of keeping them constantly mobile is the isolation. Okay. And then the, I know drug dependency is a big one. They'll get them dependent on drugs and facilitate that, that dependency. And drugs is huge. Um, I've got, I've literally got Facebook search warrant evidence of the private messaging between, and this is just one example of this particular trafficker saying, uh, do this date first. And the girls, multiple of the victims are saying, daddy, can I have a pill? Do this date first. Daddy, can I, you know, go to bed or, you know, go see my family or a friend do these dates first. So totally controlling them through every means. And, and the fentanyl pills are a huge part of this as well right now. Yeah. Fentanyl is, man, that is a scary, scary drug. Um, and I, I've, I've had a Chris Foreman um, out of Washington. He runs, uh, he's the president for the narcotics um, group, uh, up over in that state and a uh, pretty big name in the narc world. And we kind of went down that rabbit hole about fentanyl. Um, Derek Maltz is another one that's got a big, uh, he's a federal agent that's pushing the awareness on fentanyl. But um, 
the yeah, fact that yeah, I was going to say the fact yeah. that the is mm -hmm. in pharmaceuticals now. They're 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 pill pressing and hiding uh, hiding and putting fentanyl in in everyday pills that people would normally have. And that that's the scary part to me. Yeah, well, also laced with other things like tranquilizer and all this yeah. other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very yeah. dangerous. Yeah, so just just in that, you know, because you get these kids that are out there and they think they're taking you know a Xanax, which is a pretty common pill. And it's got fentanyl in it. And if you don't, if you if you're not a drug user that's used to that type of dope anyway, just a little bit's gonna it's gonna kill you, um, yeah. or get you pretty damn close. So, yeah, fentanyl is a is a big thing. Um, but man, that is crazy. The just even having the evidence that they're talking back and forth, and and you see the writing on the wall right there. And 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 this is where civilians are gonna look at that and they'll be like, why can't I? Don't understand why they can't get out of that. Well. So, yeah, I didn't really talk about the, the grooming process, but part of that process is um, learning everything that they can about their victim, where their parents work, what kind of cars they drive, where their siblings go to school, how old are they, what are their name. And for, for a victim, you're thinking this person's interested in you and like a relationship type thing. And then they flip the script on you and then they have all this information about you to threaten you with it. And those threats are very real. The whole time, the one thing that I try and, and, and impress upon people is that a trafficker or a pimp, one and the same, same person, same word, just two different ways to say it, is the most reliable person you will ever meet. If they say they're going to beat your ass, they're going to beat your ass. If they say they're going to take you to your parents' house and point a gun at their house, and depending on their mood right then, they might shoot at your parents' house. They're going to get you in the car. They're going to pull the gun out. They're going to point it at your parents' house. They have to have these victims believe that what they say is going to happen because they don't have anything else. And that's part of the control as well as the isolation. Those threats are very real. And that's why these victims are walking down the side of the road with a phone in their hand. They could call the police at any time, but they don't because they know what will happen because they've been conditioned to know if I do this, that equals my trafficker acting this way. Dang. We, we actually, um, I heard, I wasn't a part of this, but I heard of people being trafficked where they were putting the Apple air tags on them, hiding them in their stuff. So not only were they tracking them by their phone, they were also tracking them in another way in case they ditched their phone or something like that. that yeah. Life 360 is another one. Mm -hmm. I, I use that, I use that with life. my kids. Yeah. Traffickers <laughs> use it too. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm not supporting trafficking. I promise. Yeah. Um, how old are we talking? What, what's the age ranges for the most susceptible? So nationally, it's lower than it was before when I first started. Like when I first started, it was 14, 15. Now it's like 12, 13, Oof. sometimes 11. My youngest that I've ever had was 12. Okay. I've got a 12 year old daughter in the house right now. Yeah. So really scary. Yeah. And what, what's even more scary is towards the end of my career, the last couple of years, we were working on catfishing pimps. And so I created undercover personas on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, um, you know, pl Bumble, plenty of fish, Moco space, all of these undercover personas so that we could engage with traffickers, have them recruit us instead of a, a live real person. Um, and what I learned with that is, and what I'm seeing since I've retired is that 
you know, all of these apps on the phone and the social media and the, you know, the ability for private messaging opens the door for traffickers to come into your kid's bedroom and literally recruit and groom them from their bedroom. That's what's going on right now, especially with kids who have open to the public profiles and they think they're going to be Instagram famous. If they leave it open, they can get all the followers and make a bunch of money like they see on YouTube. That's an open door to predators, to sex buyers and traffickers. Um, I had Randy Schneider, I believe his name Randall. is. Randall. Uh-huh. Yeah. Randall. So I had him on and yes. um, we kind of touched on that because we our, our episode was about his specialty and specifically yes. children. Um, and he, I, I asked him a very, he gave me a very discouraging answer, but when you're doing this type of work, when you're going on to these these websites or, or using these apps or things that, you know, our kids are using too. I mean, I think he said Roblox and, and other like games Minecraft. And, uh-huh. and Minecraft. Yeah. Um, where these guys are actively trying to recruit your kids. Um, now, did you face the same type of numbers he did? He said it was more than they could even like go It's after. pretty overwhelming. It yeah. is overwhelming because, um, you know, our human trafficking unit had eight detectives, two sergeants for the fifth largest city in the United States. And I know that our I'm not an ICAC guy. Randall was an ICAC guy. His is, you know, dealing with people who are trying to have sex with kids. I'm dealing with people who are trying to prostitute and sexually exploit kids in a different, a little bit of a different way. And so my experience is from that. But, right. you know, both of us can honestly say that we're absolutely overwhelmed. It's, I mean, every day, like literally I just had someone tell me about the Saturn app, which is an app that the school is sponsoring at this person's school for them to communicate with the teachers and the classmates and criminals and predators and sex buyers and traffickers are finding a way to infiltrate that app and communicate with and have a whole crop of people that they can try and reach out to and exploit. So I mean, that, that app just happened this year, this school year. So, geez. Now, when we're talking these type of numbers in your experience, like, are we talking like five out of 10 people that we deal with that could possibly be a, a predator? I mean, when this seems reasonable. So that's where I wanted to come back to training. Okay. <laughs> um, in the academy, I didn't in 99, 98. When I was in the academy, I did not have a human trafficking class. Did you have a human trafficking class? No. So we have a whole bunch of cops out there that don't recognize what's right in front of their face. So since 2014, Phoenix Police Department, at least, because I created the class and uh, had been teaching it before I retired, uh, we're instructing our officers to recognize when you when you pull over a vehicle, this might be a human trafficking more than just a speeding ticket or driving on suspended license. Um, or when you go to a loud noise complaint at a hotel and, you know, we show up there, we get people's info. We say, Hey, if we have to come back where somebody's going to go to jail, if you guys disturb the peace again, yeah. that's what we do. But in all of those instances, you could be at a hotel room where you've got a trafficker and three victims and we aren't seeing it. And I actually have a Facebook live video of a pimp bragging on his Facebook live in the middle or like in the middle of a parking lot near a gas station where there's five patrol cars dealing with whatever they're dealing with. 
he's in the background showing the patrol cars in the background of his life and bragging about them not seeing him. He literally screams at his prostitute. He's making money fall all over the ground in the gas station and just constantly talking shit about how we don't see him and we really hadn't been. And, and sometimes we still aren't because we don't have any training on what to look at, what to recognize. So it's yeah. definitely an issue. And I, and let's be honest, I think there's a lot of patrol guys that don't want to see it. Yeah. These are I'm, not easy cases. I mean, yeah. I over the years had so many where I, interviewed a victim for three hours. I did a search warrant. I arrested a bad guy. I submitted charges. The victim, an adult, decided they didn't want to press charges anymore once they got their plane ticket to go home. And the whole case went away. What a yeah. waste of fucking time. Yeah. So um, definitely it's not an easy job. Um, I almost think that homicide's easier because your victim isn't going to disappear on you. <laughs> you know where your victim's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's very common. Cause I mean, just like I told you, at least in the property crimes realm, we're always going to those hotels. That is where this stuff's being fenced or, or just taken to after they hit a, hit a lick, you know, like that is common. So we go to these shitbag hotels and I can see the writing on the wall, but that's not my specialty. For one, I'm on a different specialized unit. But two, you see patrol guys going in and out of there all the time, and they are not putting any type of cases on those. One, because they're probably not trained um, to recognize it or anything like that. Or two, they just don't know how. It's not that they don't recognize it. They see it, see the writing on the wall, but they don't know how to go after it. Best they yeah. can do is hope their department has a person like you to say, hey, we see this activity. Can you guys go do something on it? Yeah, that or if we, because we used to do briefings, so we would show up in briefings, third shift, day shift. Hit up know, roll calls briefings. and stuff. And yeah, and we would be, you know, introduce ourselves. We are the detectives that put our number and our name on the on the whiteboard, but we're actually going to answer the phone. Yeah. <laughs> or your boss will call like the General Investigations Bureau and they'll call us out because we uh, have two detectives on standby 24-7, so through grant funding, we're able to do that and we'll respond out. I'm on my, I was on my high three. I'm going to definitely come out for overtime. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. We definitely um, encouraged uh, officers to, you know what, if you show up, you got a kid, even if you don't have them disclose and they suspect, let's, let's interview them. Or you've got a kid that's constant runaway. You've recovered them multiple times. They were found in a bad area of town near like a known area for prostitution. Let's interview them. Okay, so that's your that's your advice to the patrol guys out there. If you're seeing these types of things, let your vice team know. Let your let yeah let somebody yeah. in those in that realm. I'm fortunate. I got a department that actually has, you know, uh, a trafficking um, team, and we also have a vice team. We have two separate. So yeah, uh, and they help each other out all the time. So it's very cool. Um, but not everybody's got those. So if you're at a small town agency, um, at least get Heidi's number. I'm sure she can. Yeah. You know, you. I've actually had that. I did a Facebook live for um, another female officer's Facebook. And one of the girls called me from like, I want to say it was actually, it was Minnesota or something. And she was going to be interviewing a girl the very next day. And she's like, they're having me do it. Cause I'm, all, I'm the only female on my department. And I don't know what to say to this kid. 
or how to ask them questions. And so I actually have like a whole for only officers, obviously, a whole interview questions list of things to ask during a child sex trafficking interview and teach a class on it. Besides all of the, you know, working for Phoenix Police Department, I am an instructor for the National Criminal Justice Training Center, Fox Valley Technical College. And so I teach, I'm a forensic interviewer, I teach how to interview child sex trafficking victims, how to interrogate these kind of suspects and put these cases together with cooperative evidence to submit for successful prosecution. So, um, you know, training is huge. These cases are not easy. You got to have, you know, put in some effort and even patrol guys, you can call a detective and they'll do it. All you'll have to do is transport the victim for us or maybe stand (laughs) by at the hotel so our evidence doesn't get stolen, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You ain't lying. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) All right. Now, I'm 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 trying to think of other uh, perspectives as far as uh, civilian and, and law enforcement side. I think I've kind of hit what I was was wanting to ask and what the life is like. And well, um, yeah, for civilians though, um, you know, recognize the indicators as well. I've had so many victims literally describe getting their ass beat at a bus stop in the middle of the day and people just walked by, people just drove by, nobody called the police, nobody did nothing. And, you know, that's really a problem. Yeah. Get involved. You can get involved anonymously. You don't have to have a patrol car show up to your house. Leave your contact number at least so that we can call and ask you if you happen to get the license plate or if you can identify this person. But at least call because... I mean, there's so many people uh, after Sound of Freedom. Did you hear about that movie? Yes. So many people are asking me, well, how can I get involved in the fight? Well, pick up the phone when you see something happen. That's like step number one. Yep. Um, Know where to report. There's the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Um, There's a little bit of a delay in calling that. Local law enforcement, like if it's happening right now, right now, that would be a call to 911, your local PD so that you can get patrol out there and they can roll out detectives or however that's going to play out. But definitely make a phone call. You can send in a text message to the hotline. You can call um, your local silent witness even, maybe get a reward, who knows. But get involved, make that call. Yes. And know the indicators. Yeah, it's uh, the ability to um, report anonymously. That's a that's a big thing lately. Um that we really didn't have much of that available to people um, without leaving their house of some sort of way or um, getting them like a specific email or something like that. But now it, it's been around for a little while and uh, the ability to report anonymously is, is it's huge. And I think it gives yeah. the people a good peace of mind. But I think people get scared when a police car shows up out front, like all the neighbors going to know I called the police. Yes. And, and you can report things without that. Yeah. And in, in some of the areas that we're talking about with the specific crimes we're talking about, like everybody, gonna, they're going to know. And it's not good that they knew you called the cops because yeah. they will do something. <laughs> they will retaliate. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, it it's important to have that out there. And I'm, it's pretty cool that you guys are offering that. Mm-hmm. Um, so through your career in doing this, you obviously saw the need. You started becoming, you became an instructor. You created courses, um, and you retire at you know top of your top of your game, I, I guess you could say. And you decide to create. Um, I had a bad divorce. I'm is that what it was? 
<laughs> oh, I didn't even think to ask you about that. You were married yeah. while you were doing this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 19 years. Yeah. Oh, shit. That's not why we got divorced, but. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I was going to say that. That's a whole that. other class for the academy, though. How yeah. to survive a divorce as a cop. I yeah, I was going to say. Because, <laughs> well, you know, it's already divorce rates bad enough as, yeah. as cops. But whenever you're a part of a specialized unit, especially UC work. Um, mm -hmm. I think every UC guy I've had on my show has been divorced <sighs> now. I'm one um, of those dudes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, yeah. My, um, one of my buddies I work with, he was on, he actually, he was deep undercover narcotics, um, Aryan brotherhood crap. And, uh, he got divorced. And then when he got out of, I think he did it like 10 years, but when he got out of that and went back into regular police work and stuff and slowly became himself again, um, got back with his ex-wife and they're married again. Oh, wow. Yeah, I had a baby. Yeah, that's so, not going to happen for me. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, um, yeah. But yeah, that... that, that yeah, was... was, that's why I retired. I, I would have been doing this, uh, you know, longer. It's just I had to cut the head off the dragon because the more money... Or the longer I stayed, the more money he was going to make off of me. Ah, so. okay. Okay. I hear you. Strategy. Yeah. It's a good strategy. I like it. Yeah. I <laughs> okay. regret it sometimes. I mean, I really loved what I was doing. And that's why I started my own consulting and training business after. Okay. Yeah. And let's get into that. What is your consulting? So I am a, um, I have my website, A Chance for Awareness. And um, basically on there, I have kind of two missions. One is community awareness, all the things that we've been talking about getting the community to be good jurors and report things and recognize trafficking happening in their community. And then the other side of it is law enforcement coaching and training. So I have traveled all over the United States um, training law enforcement as far as undercover operations, interviewing child sex trafficking victims, all those things. Um, and I can do it virtually or in person. And it's almost where we literally, I offer a, an option to post ads and have detectives or, you know, patrol officers coming in from patrol practice how to talk to these sex buyers on the phone, uh, really? have them call our ads and stuff. So it's okay. one of those uh, really exciting parts of, of, you know, the undercover work is having it go on in action um, through real life situations there. But it's definitely rewarding as far as sharing all of my experience because I, you know, want to pass the torch on. I want officers to be excited about doing these cases. That's really the only way we're going to fight this problem. If we all start doing proactive operations to target sex buyers and traffickers. Now I'm looking at your photos here and I yeah. just, I still can't picture you passing for a prostitute. Oh, I changed <laughs> my appearance. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the frontline PBS documentary, sex trafficking in America. I have not. That was a documentary done on our unit. Uh, Frontline PBS followed us for three years. And so basically you'll see me change up what I look like, wear wigs, all that stuff. But it's, you know, giving everyone a true depiction of domestic sex trafficking happening here in okay. the United States, in our community. So it's a really good documentary. Okay. Uh, so you have a yeah. blog as well, too. I do. <laughs> Okay. Well, this yeah. is awesome because now, you know, it, you can only get so much from a podcast. And what my goal is, is people, one, they got to know you. 
They they see your personality. You know, it's a lot better to see your personality on something like this versus you know a little soundbite here and there. So now they're going to know you know the person behind the mission, and it's going to encourage them to dig a little bit more, and they can get all the real answers. I, I'm not the answer person, people. And this, this episode is not designed to, uh, I know you cheap cops out there. It's not to circumvent you having to go to one of her classes either. Right. So uh, <laughs> make sure you f- seek her out and have her come teach at your place or do it virtually. But um, no, I, so you got blogs here. Uh, obviously, I know it's going to be about sex trafficking, but what yeah. type of stuff are you talking about? Um, so my blogs are focused mostly for the community awareness side. So I'll talk about the indicators. I'll talk about why victims fall into this lifestyle, okay. the recruitment, um, some of the terminology, you know, some of the things that I can share that aren't undercover related. Okay. That's for the sworn yeah. classes. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, I see that you've got uh, bringfreedom.org. Pod. Yeah, that was another podcast that I was on. So okay. I, I'll be I, adding this one to my uh, awesome. Walker. Appreciate it. I am a yeah. huge fan of uh, sharing. We're, we're cops. And at yeah. the end of the day, we all got the same mission. Catch more bad guys and help help out citizens. So yes. um, if if listening to that podcast helps do that and they get to listen so to you in there. If you go down a little bit, that's the link to the documentary right there. Oh, right here? No, go down a little bit more. Okay. Uh, a little bit more. It's um, it's got a picture of yeah, right there, sex trafficking in America. Oh, I see That's it. That's the I link see to it. the documentary, yeah. and then the other two links are that big case that I briefly talked about with the almost 500 year sentence, uh-huh. and then the other case is a case that I did right before I retired. One victim, one trafficker, 108 years in prison. The other uh-huh. one had seven victims. Okay. Nice. But just to show as an investigator, as a detective, getting justice for these victims and and the evolution of this whole situation. Also, you know, they were offering eight, nine, 10 years back in 2000, um, you know, one ish when I first was submitting cases. Fast forward to now, I mean, hundreds of years. And, you know, obviously that's involving a trial as well, but definitely the understanding of prosecutors and judges and detectives doing a better job is resulting in higher sentences for these guys. So it's all good things. Is there an epiphany moment for these victims that realize I'm a victim? You know, sometimes, sometimes they don't. Um, I think for the one case that I'm talking about with um, the seven victims, that juvenile was familial trafficking. It was her uncle that was trafficking her. Her epiphany moment was when he told her he was going to pursue getting her younger sister involved. And her younger sister was the same age she was when he first had sex with her. She was 13. So on that day that she was told that by him, she was only 16, but she still had, you know, balls enough to call her sister and get the police rolling and disclose all of this. So they definitely have an epiphany moment. Um, A lot of victims, you know, feel shame. They feel a lot of shame related to they know what they're doing is wrong. They know that their family, you know, wouldn't approve of some of their behaviors um, that was encouraged by the trafficker. Um, So it's definitely, I think, in the back of their mind. But just um, the overpowering voice of the trafficker and the threats are what keeps them stuck in it. Yeah, because I would think that there's going to be 
you know, for some of the runaways and stuff, like, that they are going to truly believe that they weren't trafficked, that they weren't victims necessarily. And I'm just curious how that deprogramming starts. Like, that's got to be a rough road. Yeah, a lot of it, and we're doing better now, is involving survivor victim advocates, those individuals that are out of the life, they've gone through their own recovery, and they're able to offer you know, their experience, their lived experience as a, you know, soundboard for how to get a victim to get out of it or to talk to police even, or to survive the one, two, three, five years that a case goes through the court system, which is also another reason why these cases are so hard because, you know, keeping a victim wanting to still press charges is really hard as time goes by. Yeah, and if they're juveniles, that's different. But if they're adults, how does that work? Now, this is for my own. Like, if they become an adult while the case is going on, does that not matter as long as the crimes occurred while they were still juveniles? Yeah, that doesn't change anything. Um, It does make them a little harder to find because typically when they're a juvenile, we can call their parents or they're in child welfare and we have, you know, a way to find them. So um, if they dip out on us, that case gets put on hold or goes to the wayside. You know, unfortunately I've had a lot of traffickers that I arrested years ago that pop back up and are trafficking a new juvenile. And what we've been doing and what we've evolved to do is coinciding with an actual victim is going after the trafficker for money laundering and illegal enterprise charges, because all of the financial gains that they're getting are based off of the legal activity. And so doing that felony case alongside one with a victim is what we're leaning more towards now because I've, like I said, lost a lot of cases wherein victims change their mind or disappear or, you know, no longer want to press charges. So what is it like for the parents once they get their kid back? Let's we're dealing with the juvenile. What is the process to help them process what the hell just happened to their kid? You know, there is definitely a lot of parents with lived experience of their kid being trafficked coming forward. Um, I know that um, right now in Arizona, we're going through this the trial with Backpage. And part of that was all of these parents coming forward. Um, one of the victim's mother, I'm sorry, one of the victims actually was murdered and her mother is testifying. And so it's, it's, it's huge. I do think we're lacking in the support system for family that goes through all of this. We're doing a better job getting support for victims. We're still not totally solved that problem yet, but we definitely really need to work on family support also. Okay. Um, That may be another episode that I want to do. You just gave me a good idea because that is, I'm trying to, through this show, I, this is one of the cool things about doing this podcast, and I think you are going to say the same thing about what you're doing. Um, as I go, I, I have my set of expertise, but I find myself learning and discovering new ways to help or new ways to attack things that I never considered, and I don't think I would have ever considered had I not done what I'm doing here. So families, and, and like that's not a topic I would have ever thought to cover, but while we were talking, I'm like, I'm a parent. I couldn't imagine what I would do when you bring my daughter to my front steps saying, we got your daughter back. She's held, you know, she's safe and sound, but you know, she's had 
hundreds of people have sex with her, like, and and she's addicted to dope and all all these things. Like, yeah. How do you begin to even tell that? Is that something you had to do personally? Like, so explain there, this stuff. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of times it is in that interview with the juvenile where they're like, "Are you going to tell my mom about what happened?" And it's yeah. you know one of those things where. I kind of put it to them that everything's public record that we do. Um, I'm not wanting to share details. I'm going to have to call your mom and tell her we've been talking um, and give her back, give you back to her. But um, I'll let you tell her, you know, what you feel you want to tell her, but I'm going to have to give her a gist of some kind to prepare her for you, what you need, you know, whether yeah. you just had a SANE exam and now you have prescriptions to fill for STDs we're going to have to talk about that with your mom. So um, it's where I think honesty in that interview and answering their questions. And that's another thing I teach on when I talk about interviewing these victims is being prepared for their questions that they're going to ask you. Yeah. Shit. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. <laughs> that, Oh, I get, I'm depressed now. Cause I'm now you got me thinking of my kids and I'm like, shit, you yeah. know, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine going through that and, you know, Cops' kids are some of the most susceptible to doing some bullshit, just like preachers' kids. Yes. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As being a cops' kid myself, I did a lot of dumb shit when I was a kid. So, yeah. um, it's it's one of those things that I keep telling parents, and that's part of the community awareness side of this is having these conversations early, putting tools in place. Like um, I'm an affiliate for Bark Technologies and for Gab Wireless. And those are two companies that developed phones that look like smartphones, touchscreen, all that, but they're actually controlled by the app and the device. And it'll notify parents um, if someone's trying to ask them to send nudie photos or talk to them inappropriately, or they download a new app, you know, that wasn't approved by the parents. And I think having that tool, having the conversations and having the expectation that you know, and the open door policy that we need to talk about the people you're talking to on a regular and not being so you guys go to your room, I'm going to watch TV or wind down from the day and they're off in their room doing who knows what and getting encouraged by who knows who. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm guilty of it myself and I know better. And, yeah. uh, I've actually taken steps. I'm actually my oldest, she's 14. Mm -hmm. Um, taking yeah, her two girls. Yeah, two girls. Yep. And I'm taking her to, uh, to Kaku, um, our crimes against children unit, uh, yeah. specifically the internet crimes. And, uh, just, just going to have her do a little, a little, you know, not interview, but, uh, tour, see what it's yeah. like. And, you know, it's one thing when you hear it from your dad, but it's totally different when you're hearing it from somebody else that does it on the daily and can explain it, you know, a lot better than yeah. I'll be able to. So, yeah, um, there's, there's new movies coming out like, um, wake up, the wake up movie is coming out. I think it comes out August 23rd. That's a, another really good movie based on a true story of a, of a girl that was trafficked, um, as a juvenile, um, our documentary, the sound of freedom, the sound of freedom and taken and those types of movies are all good, but they kind of like, give this perception that it's an abduction. And I really want people to understand mm -hmm. that's like maybe 15% of how this happens. The other percent of how this happens is the coercion, 
the false promises, yeah. you know, the, you know, the grooming. Yeah. That brain, the brainwashing them. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a very long, uh, long play manipulation that obviously works. Yeah. Um, and the, and the, and the money that's made like mm-hmm. is insane. What is a typical, uh, sex act? Like what are, what are people get, what are these pimps making in a, in a week, a year? So I, I typically say, I, I mean, I've never really had a pimp with more than 30 K and cash. Maybe they have it, you know, in bank accounts, cryptocurrency, all of that. Typically these domestic pimps that I've been describing and where my perspective comes from, they don't have a lot of money. They are blowing through that shit. Like nobody's business. They're renting Maserati like a pimp. Yeah. They're, you know, (laughs) flashy with their jewelry, their, you know, Louis Vuitton shoes with the red bottoms. And they're showing all that on their social media to portray themselves as, you know, this perception of this amazing, successful pimp. But really, I have not, it's not been my experience that they have a lot of money because they blow through it so fast, but they definitely are making a lot of money. So if you have one pimp and they have a quota and the quota is basically each of their victims, let's say they have three girls has to make a thousand dollars a night before they can come back to the hotel room to shower, to eat, to change clothes, to change shoes, even otherwise they're going to get beat up over not coming back with that thousand dollars. I mean, realistically, yes, they are making a lot of tax-free money. Um, and that's where we're moving towards the financial investigations and doing the illegal enterprise money laundering cases on them, because all of that is subject to seizure and taking their shit is the best ever it is isn't it i love taking people's stuff (laughs) when they're bad guys man i did a uh, catalytic converter um yeah yeah, we did a a detail for that and we got these guys crossing state lines and just you know they're basically they're the reason your catalytic converters are getting taken because they are Mm -hmm. buying them black market at low Mm -hmm. cost from all these you know drug seeking people for the most part that are cutting your cats off your cars. And, um, they're going across state lines, making $500,000 in a year, just recycling stuff. That was what was driving the market. So we took the van, we took all the catalytic converters that they had with them at the time, which was like 80 something in the back of this van. And I mean, if people knew the type of money they were making just on that, you know, and and now we're talking sex trafficking, which is, I, I would think a little bit more lucrative, because the demand is so much higher and and the demand is the crazy part that you brought up that nobody, I don't think anybody's fully understanding and, and, and seeing the writing of the wall. So we did a whole like week long operation just to figure out what is the demand. And so we had 10 female undercovers posting ads for prostitution. And we had this cool algorithm, computer algorithm that captured people's IP address when they clicked on the link for our ad. And so we already had some identifying information for these people. And then when they called us, we got their phone number. Then we're working towards in the back side of things, identifying them. And in that weeks long operation, we would engage in conversations about sex for money. And we would get to the point, if you've ever called an escort, it's a three call process. (laughs) I have not. I'm glad you told me that. Typically it's, Hey, what kind of, you know, rates do you have? What kind of things can I get? And what part of town are you in? And then they call back and say, Hey, I'm close by. 
where's the hotel? And then the last call is what room number? Anyway, <laughs> I would like to buy one sex, please. <laughs> <laughs> Cop. So basically it is in that week long operation. In, in when we established the crime, the next call, when they called back for the room number, I've already sent them on the opposite side of town on purpose because I wanted them to waste their time and their gas. But they call and they say, I'm here. And I, I introduce myself as Detective Chance with the Phoenix Police Department Human Trafficking Unit. We've captured your IP address, Bill. And I'd refer them as their real name to get that oh shit factor. Like, holy shit, this really is the police. Um, and in an attempt to give them a warning and we only did it that one week. Like we're not giving warnings for these guys, but this was just to do this operation to determine the numbers. And basically we determined based off all of those parameters and clicking on our ads and during times and how often and all of those things, a hundred thousand men are buying sex in Arizona. In a week. Daily. Oh my God. Yeah. Daily. Yeah. In Arizona, the whole state, but it, it's one of those things where, you know, we wanted to know how bad the problem was. And when people ask how bad is Arizona, there's ranking, but there's really not a way to put numbers to this whole thing, unless you're doing operations like that and can, you know, project based on this activity, this is what we're seeing. But for victims, you know, people put out, there's 27 billion victims in the United States. We have no idea. We can't put a number because... We don't have victims that come forward and tell us. We do usually have to go find them. And so there really isn't a way to put a number on how many victims. We know how many we've recovered, but there are so many more out there that we haven't. That's insane. Holy shit. That isn't, I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't ready for that number. A lot. And so that's where this whole problem would be eliminated if we could stop the demand. Yeah. And that's part of my awareness, too, is I talk about sex buyers. I talk about how they're not remorseful for what they're doing. I talk about how they don't recognize that they're contributing to this problem. I talk about, you know, the, the consequences now and how it's getting worse for buyers, which rightfully so it should be. Um, and so part of that is a deterrent to attack the demand. And the other part that is. So the argument's going to be it's a victimless crime. That's going to be the argument from people that either one don't understand, um, or two, just like you said, that's the type of mentality these these bad guys are taking is that it's not hurting anybody. So, yeah. what's your what's your take on that? Well, I mean, just like we've already talked about, um, someone that's offered false promises, coerced or forced, which are the elements of human trafficking, sex trafficking, they are a victim. They are being exploited. They don't have the ability to give consent to what's happening to them knowledgeably. And, um, you know, we need to have the public also recognize that as well, that they are victims. I mean, we're already behind. We're trying to repair that relationship and we need victims to see that also. Um, yeah. What What's the percentage that you would say is juveniles that are being victimized? Um you know, I don't, I don't know what we could put a number to that because we don't know how many juveniles that. I mean, in your experience, like the, the, is the majority of the ones that you've dealt with juveniles or. I can tell you that since COVID, there is a stat out there that there's been a 93% increase in child sex trafficking because of COVID, not because of the COVID disease, but because <laughs> right. the parents that, um, you know, had to go to work still and their kids are left home because the schools are closed. 
and they're unattended and they're on their computers or their phones and predators just poured in. So that's where that number comes from. That would be a good example of this problem magnified in the last couple of years. Okay. Um, Well, you have opened my eyes up um, even more. I I think, I think I'm a pretty knowledgeable guy. I haven't, I have an ear for a lot of this stuff, but between you and, and Randall Snyder, yeah. Jesus, depressing me, depressing me. I got to hold on to my kids tight at night yes. <laughs> because it makes me nervous. Um, is there anything that you want to hit on? Anything well, we didn't cover that you would like to hit on? Yeah, just for, um, and, and we saw my website um, for the general public. Uh, I do have that course that I created that talks through all of this as far as that evolution that I was hinting to and more about victim vulnerabilities, sex buyers, and then traffickers. And then I also touch on resources, indicators, how to report, where to report, and how to get involved. Um, I think with Sound of Freedom and other documentaries coming out, I, I think it's a wonderful thing that human trafficking or sex trafficking is actually in people's minds. And um, we can only do better by getting people more involved in the fight. So um as far as community awareness, that's, that's one of my goals. As far as law enforcement, I am very passionate about training law enforcement on how to do these undercover operations, avoid entrapment, uh, get the, get the, you know, the PC and get the job done as far as getting these bad guys in custody and really getting inspired to pursue these kinds of cases, even though they're very difficult, um, to see through you know, to successful prosecution. But I've, I've learned so much going through those trials that, um, you know, it's really rewarding to see the end and be able to speak on and inspire other detectives and officers to get involved. So, yeah, I'm hoping that's what they get out of this, because um, like I told you, like, it's it's just amazed me doing this, how much I've had cops reach out. and like, man, I had, I'm glad you had that you know, like Randy, uh, Randall on, like I, like yeah. I was kind of wanting to get into that realm and he made me want to do it even more now. And, um, and, and I, I would love to encourage other people to, that want to do that. Cause I have no desire to want to yeah. do any of this. It, 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 it yeah. definitely intimidates me, but you want the people that want to do this. So I'm hoping we inspire the right ones to go do this job. Um, and you obviously are going to be keep going around the country and stuff. Have you been involved with the, uh, the real-time crime center association at all no i would love to get involved with them i know I, that they had a conference coming up yes and so mm-hmm. we've been having workshops and stuff and one of the ones i think we're going to be touching on is uh i think human trafficking is part of that um oh, okay. it's it's not a main focus necessarily it's Send just a, my info <laughs> yeah so well i'm a board member so i definitely oh, okay. yeah. nice. So, um, I definitely want to get you in the door for that. Um, very, very easy to do. It's not hard. So I don't want to act like I'm a miracle worker. Um, yeah, I presented at big, huge conferences like shared hope international. You're going to be at the uh, IACP this year. I have not spoken at that one yet. Um, I did do a huge, uh, that needs to be your thing. Yeah. That have you been to one? I haven't. Oh my God. Okay. So. I went to my. I got first... a lot of chiefs that I've connected with on LinkedIn, though. Yes, so yeah. I went to my first one last year, and I had no clue. It is the place to be for for exactly what you're doing. <laughs> it's okay. the place to be, so you will be able to network and all those chiefs that you're 
friends with on LinkedIn, you'll be seeing uh -huh. up close and personal. And okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's fun. It's a good time, but, um, yeah. all right. Uh, I think I've got everything that I was looking to get. We hit what you wanted to hit. Um, yes. I, I appreciate you being on. Thank Absolutely. you very much. Wonderful. And uh, if you ever need this platform for anything, you got, you know, a special 30 minute thing you want to do a, a live, anything like that. My platform is your platform. All right. um, Cause I, I love your mission. I love what you're doing. And I, I think it's a uh, great stuff. So definitely want to help you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Anytime, ma'am. All right. As soon Bye. as this is done, um, just hang out for a second and uh, okay. we'll finish up. Thank you. Uh -huh.